If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the December 23rd, 2019 Christmas Week edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we gift you our classic celebration theater radio play. Rick Watts finds the holiday spirit in WeHo. Vash Bodhi talks to a gay Santa. But we start with Wayne Sampson working the carpet in Beverly Hills at Trevor Live 2019. We're at the Trevor Project's Trevor Live 2019 Los Angeles on the orange carpet where all the celebrities will be walking tonight. We will have drag queens, we'll have celebrities, we'll have allies, we'll have so many people to talk to and let's get this party started. Give us your name and tell us where we know you from. I'm Boy Untitled. I'm going to be performing tonight during the Reverie Red Carpet Showcase. Performance on the red carpet or orange carpet tonight. Yes. So tell us what Trevor means to you. Sum that up for us, please. Trevor is an organization that's creating community and space for people who maybe feel like they don't have that at their fingertips. I know I grew up in a community that wasn't as accepting as the community I currently live in. This is my first time with the Trevor Project, so being here and feeling the energy in this space, this huge community that's creating support and opportunity for outreach, that's something I wish I had as a kid. So I'm really happy to be here and to get to share my story, my music with this space. What kind of advice do you give teenagers from your younger self? The advice I would give is doing maybe the most frightening thing and really reaching out and letting someone know that you might be hurting if that is the case. I know vulnerability isn't something that is taught in the younger part of our lives. It's not taught in our schools. It's definitely something that growing up was frowned upon. You know, you got to be tough and cool and just riding with it. And vulnerability is cool. Letting people know that you need help allows you to also help other people. It's a cause and effect kind of thing. So I would say reach out, even if it feels a little scary. Since you are a musician, is that how you dealt with your pain or what you went through? Do you write your songs that way? Yeah, absolutely. Tonight I'm also going to be premiering my short film, Out, which is about the release of my project, but also the death of my father in March. Those two things really created a vortex. Music was the way I was able to heal and in continuing to heal and continuing to grieve, but it gave me an outlet. And I feel like my story tonight, I'm hoping that people can see and hear that and experience vulnerability. I'm going to do my best to be vulnerable so that people can connect with that and also maybe do it in their own lives. 
And one last question. Who showed up in your life and was like a mentor or someone that helped change your life into a better direction for you? I have a quick answer for that. My godfather, George Summers, I portrayed his life in a play about people living with HIV AIDS in Boston when I was living there for college. And at that time, I wasn't out of the closet. And I got to learn all the details of his life and learn about the AIDS crisis firsthand. And for me, he really flipped a switch on in my brain. And since then, him and I have been, you know, father and son. He's, he's like a father figure to me, and he's really done a lot to connect me to the older generations and has really informed a lot of who I am as an artist. Where can we find your work or your Instagram or any of your social media? I'm at Boy Untitled on Instagram, and you can connect to me on everything at boyuntitled.com. And where does that come from, Boy Untitled? Boy Untitled started off as the name of the project, the EP that I just released, and that project is about emotional evolution. It's about moving towards the next phase of your life. And while I was writing it, I was also experiencing it. And once I kind of got to the what I perceived as the end destination, I realized that that was just the start of a new one. So Boy Untitled to me means really embracing the journey of becoming, because in becoming, you really need to let go of a need for a title or definition and give yourself permission to become multiple versions of yourself, whatever that means. Thank you, Mark. That was beautiful. Have a good night. Hi, I'm Raja, and I am the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 3, a long time ago. So, <laughs> Well, you know what? You won. That's good. I did, yes, and you're right. It was good. Still is. Still is. Still is. Tonight, you're here with Stone Out Loud. How did you get involved with that? Stonewall Out Loud was this project that was sort of experimental, and it was the idea of taking modern LGBTQ figures to sort of lip-sync and voice the words of those who did the job before us, people who actually were part of the Stonewall fight. And so I had done a ton of stuff with World of Wonder over the years, including being a participant in Drag Race. They just kind of invited me to be one of the people to do this thing. And it's been wonderful. You know, you never really know what it's like until you see the project finished. And when I saw it, I really found it to be really quite moving and compelling. And obviously it's allowed, uh, I mean, people are definitely paying attention to it. So glad to be a part of it. And what does Trevor mean to you? It's all about visibility, I think, you know. I think about safety. I think about, like, the LGBTQ kids, especially the youth, who are kind of going through it. I think it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a safety spot. So, and it's, yeah. And one more question. Who showed up into your life and quote-unquote saved you? Oh, wow, there's so many. I could definitely uh, write a, a volume of people who are definitely there. I have definitely been lucky enough to f have found my chosen family and, and queer. Uh, you know, I have so many drag moms and so many drag dads and aunties and cousins, and, uh, and I'm very fortunate for that, so. Well, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you inside. Uh, I'm Michael D. Cohen. I play Schwaz on a Nickelodeon show called Henry Danger. And uh, what else do you want to know? <laughs> I used to be a Trevor Lifeline counselor, actually. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations on that show Nickelodeon and everything you got going on. So what does Trevor mean to you? So many things. I did their training and then I worked on the Lifeline for about three years. I did it because I really wanted to help youth in general, LGBT youth, but particularly trans youth. Earlier this year, I disclosed that I transitioned about 19 years ago. And I've just been really passionate about helping youth deal with those issues around gender identity and that kind of thing. And so being able to do that for Trevor, I mean, it changed my life. The youth that I spoke with, yes, I was supposed to be helping them, but really they probably helped me just as much. Uh, it was transformative. Speak a little bit about what Trevor did for you prior to volunteering. 
What does Trevor mean to you prior to you getting involved with it? How did you hear about Trevor? Yeah, I mean, I knew about it, but I didn't have a personal connection with it until I started volunteering with them. But I knew that they did great work. I knew that they saved lives. I knew that, and at that time, they just had the lifeline. They didn't actually have the texting. That was coming in, texting and chatting, all that stuff was just coming in as I was there. It's grown. It's grown incredibly. So um, at that time, it was a smaller entity, but still did amazing work. And talk to us about who showed up into your life and quote-unquote saved you. Oh, wow. Um, For sure, friends and um, family were amazing and supportive. People just surprised me. And I found that, I don't know if other people feel this way, but I've heard heard that this is common, that people surprise you. The people you think are going to be supportive may not be, but the people who you think aren't going to just come forward and just are so great. And, And that gave me so much hope and the show that I'm on and and Nickelodeon being so supportive of me supporting trans youth and being out there to lend a voice they've been amazing that way and so that's given me incredible hope and that that saves me every day that makes me feel like there's a great future for all LGBT people this is Wayne Sampson on the orange carpet at the Trevor live gala founded in 1998 by the creators of the Academy Award-winning short film Trevor The Trevor Project is the leading national organization providing crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning young people under 25. Hello. So you're an honoree tonight, Silver Shepherd. What does that mean to you personally? Well, I have three children and two grandchildren. So... When you have children or grandchildren, or perhaps you just mentor a young person, you have the opportunity to encourage them to love who they want to love, to live the way they want to live. Love is not something that has to do with who you're loving. It's how you're loving, don't you think? And so when I fought to carry that banner originally in Washington, D.C., they said at first, no, because you're not gay or lesbian. I said, when Martin Luther King have objected to me, marching with him because the color of my skin, because Martin Luther King was assassinated three miles from my high school in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968. So that had an enormous effect. And um, prior to getting involved in uh, Trevor, um, had you, in, or, you know, prior to tonight, have you been at Trevor's offices and did anything with them? Yes, I have. I'm very impressed with the work that they do. I have a very close friend. He couldn't be here tonight, but he was one of the first uh, champions of the Trevor Project. And uh, he's, he's one of my mentors, and I'm, I'm not going to mention his name, but he's, he was kind of a person that helped me get the education that I got aside from doing films and acting. He was like my mentor for learning, believe that I could learn more than just, you know, acting. And one more last question. Who showed up into your life and say, quote, unquote, saved you? Sorry, say that again? Uh, who showed up into your life and, quote, unquote, saved you? Like, helped you, like you say, your French see a different way? Well, um, I come from a very violent childhood. I'll be talking about that when I receive this award. And so somehow I managed to make it into the choir at church. And at church, I found through singing and through accepting, it was the Episcopal Church, but it became, I chose to be confirmed. And uh, that spiritual, um, it's kind of a grounding in spirituality. But what does it really mean? We don't know exactly, but I have a feeling. 
that Jesus would never have turned anyone away. And I believe it deep down, and I think that helped me. Thank you, Sybil. I'm Mary Lambert. I think most people know me from the song Same Love with Macklemore. What does Trevor mean to you and how did you get involved? I love the Trevor Project. I think about myself as a 17-year-old and the lack of resources and access that I had to a community that maybe understood me or would have embraced me. I was, I struggled big time. I grew up in the church and I would have loved a phone line. I would have loved to find community and people that understood me or that I could make my new chosen family. And Trevor Project has provided this incredible resource to queer youth and, you know, oftentimes kids that don't know that it can be different or it can be better and you don't have to live in shame. You don't have to feel like you're failing at being straight. You can just be who you are. And who showed up into your life and was your, like, quote-unquote, saved you or helped you with your struggle? Wow, I never thought about it. Um, Tegan and Sarah, honestly, like just seeing them be unabashedly themselves, they were just so inspiring to me and, and made me feel like maybe I could be out, you know? I'm Chris Daughtry and I'm here at Trevor Project Live Gala and it's my first time. I'm so excited to be here. I have LGBTQ youth in my own personal life and I see firsthand how affected they are by not having that support system around them and by not having a family member that they could lean on that fully accepts them or a community that they feel comfortable enough to be fully themselves. And so I think it's incredible what they're doing because a lot of these young people don't have that community that they feel comfortable enough to be fully themselves and with the suicide rates the way they are. I think it's incredible that Trevor Project is providing services 24-7 to these youth in crisis and I just want them to know that there are people like myself out here that are their ally and love them and fully accept them and that we are here and this is all for them. My name is Eugene Liang. Most people probably know me from uh, the digital content I produce and appear in through a group called the Try Guys. What does Trevor mean to you personally? Can you sum that up for us? Trevor means everything to me. I think that the most important thing to take away is that we have a lot of nonprofits that are amazing that are supporting LGBTQ plus causes, but every single person in this room who identifies as queer could put themselves in the shoes of the people who need this service the most, which is at-risk, suicidal LGBTQ youth. I personally was there in a dark part of my life, and so to be able to know that anything that I can do now, incrementally or just like marginally as an adult with some sort of influence, really makes me understand that uh, you know there's no role, big or small, that can come and say, we need to be able to fund and support the kids who are going to be taking up the mantle for the next generation of LGBTQ people. And who showed up into your life and has been your savior, quote unquote? Wow. Um, I guess my savior was probably, I guess it really was the audience that was watching when I first went online. I was very uh, much in a place artistically where I thought I had to exploit my otherness in order to be able to speak my truth. And I had millions of young people, especially queer people, who said, the more queer and open you are and the more uh, happy you are with yourself, the more we can feel that you are creating something that we can respond to. So I really thank all the people who ever supported me along the way with uh, the digital stuff I produced. And when you were struggling with all that, how did you get the confidence to show up online and, and sort of put yourself out there? 
in truth, it was actually for a job that I had to in the beginning. But even to get to that point, really, there's no reason to hide behind even the idea of how you should be on camera, because that is a reflection of how you might be able to try to hide behind even yourself in a social situation, or yourself to your family, or yourself with your identity. And I was treating even the idea of being on camera as sort of another extra layer, another mask. And to peel at least that off is a really great way for anyone, especially those who are queer identifying, to be able to confront themselves and be open about communicating how they exactly feel and identify in a very clean, proactive way. Talking to Jane Lynch, uh, Jane, what does Trevor mean to you? You're going to be presenting Sybil with the award tonight. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I'm g- really happy to give this award to Sybil because she's been out there in the trenches with, for the LGBT plus community since the 80s. She was one of our first allies at great risk to her own standing in Hollywood. She was out there marching for our rights, and so I'm really thrilled to be giving her this award. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. This is Wayne Sampson reporting from the Trevor Live Gala at the Beverly Hilton and Beverly Hills California. So for anyone asking where is Wayne, now you know. Next week, we'll have more Where's Wayne. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Peter Tchaikovsky, the first Russian composer to gain international fame, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Even today, Tchaikovsky's symphonies, operas, and concertos are performed worldwide. But it is his ballets that have become world-renowned, like Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, and the perennial favorite, The Nutcracker. Born in the Russian Ural Mountains in 1840, he was not musically inclined as a child. But after a short civil service career, he entered the newly founded St. Petersburg Conservatory of Music and quickly matured as a composer. Several commissions from a wealthy widow made it possible for Tchaikovsky to devote all his time to composing. While some criticized his early works, his music was always popular with the public. His last symphony was dedicated to Vladimir Davidov, whom he described as incomparable, enchanting, and ideal. Upon Tchaikovsky's death, Vladimir was his sole heir. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, John Klein. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And now, longtime IMRU contributor Rick Watts offers us a red ribbon Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Everywhere you go. The day before Christmas, again, sunny, 63 degrees and not a cloud in sight above the shaggy, unkept palm trees lining Sunset Boulevard. Fighting impatient crowds in the grocery store and snarl traffic on the streets as she passed the church with the big red ribbon. Christmas was one thing this day did not look like, thought Sheila, and in her current circumstances this most certainly did not feel like Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. Merry for whom? Now, 67, Sheila was already alone in the world. Her ex-husband, an Oklahoma Baptist preacher's son, had dumped her 22 years earlier after discovering her letters from an ancient love affair with another woman. Their only child, already estranged from his father, pushed away from Sheila, too, finally running away from home after one particularly nasty argument, when things were said on both sides that ought not have been said. That was the last she'd heard of him for two years, until a San Francisco detective visited her at work, bringing the news she'd long dreaded. 
and her meager wages and poor credit could not purchase even a simple memorial service and urn for his ashes, his remains still resting in a sealed cardboard box in the back of her closet. Christmas. The only signs of its approach in her small apartment were the scrawny, malformed tree, no presents underneath it, though. Oh, and the clutter from Christmas Day dinner for five friends from her Alcoholics Anonymous group. She'd hoped they would bring friends, company that would be a welcome change from her usual solitary home life. So while at the store getting food for tomorrow's feast, she also bought some plastic forks and knives and a pack of those cardboard trays with a little section to keep the veggies separate from the turkey and the potatoes and so on. Sheila had never been a particularly religious person, and her ex-husband's critical self-righteousness only reinforced her feelings. Still, she found comfort in childhood memories of Christmas Eve candlelight services and resolved to attend that Church of the Big Red Ribbon that evening, seeking to relive some of those moments of years gone by, even though she didn't have what she considered a decent suit or dress for the occasion. She was several minutes late for the service and snuck through the lobby, barely noticing the red ribbon-adorned memorial plaque with all those names. She scrambled on up into the balcony, only to find almost every last seat taken there, too. The service was nice enough. The church was beautifully decorated. The lights, the Christmas tree, the poinsettias down below the pulpit and lectern, framed by a cross, a couple of flags, and, and oh, a, a rainbow flag. There were the usual scriptures and sermon about God coming to earth as a human that other humans could relate to, to save us from ourselves and each other, yada, yada, yada. Sheila could never quite understand the next Bible quote booming over the sound system by some voice of God sounded like guy, something about, where you serve the least of these, there you serve me also. And the other one about, where two or more are gathered in God's name, there he is, referring to church, he guessed. And then the final part of the service, everyone's favorite, everyone's lighting candles being lit from what had started as one flame from one candle in the front of the darkened sanctuary and more scripture being read about a light in the darkness, and then singing Silent Night, Holy Night. It really was rather nice. All those folks, blue-haired old ladies, and tattooed and pierced young punkers singing together. The husbands and wives and their impossibly cute and well-groomed but fidgeting kids. And then she noticed the disheveled man off to the side with the backpack and the garbage bag full of clothes singing at the top of his lungs. She'd passed him often before, pushing a shopping cart overflowing with bottles, cans, and who knows what else. Next to him, another family, and the two young men holding hands, singing from the same hymnal. And another gay couple, and another. That one with kids of their own, all joining the parade of candles slowly winding out of the church, down the steps, and home. At least for those who had homes. By the time she got home, Sheila was exhausted, and she lay restless in her bed, fearful of screwing up dinner the next day somehow, until sheer fatigue finally had its way, and she closed her eyes. What seemed like a moment later, she woke with a start. Noon! She'd overslept and hadn't even started cooking one dish yet. She tossed down two cups of warmed-over coffee and began a mad dash to get the turkey in the oven and the other dishes prepped before calling her guests to warn them that dinner would be late. Damn! No answer! She left a message, then another message, then another... Then another for the husband and wife team in recovery with her. Finally, she jumped in the shower. Everything seemingly now under control, she proudly thought, Damn, I'm multitasking better than a souped-up computer. Yeah, this is going to be okay after all. She dried and styled her hair, now confident of an enjoyable evening with her fellow AA groupies. And then the phone rang. One guest canceling. He didn't feel well. Oh well, more food for us, she thought. And then the phone rang again. The young woman in Sheila's AA group apologized profusely, but had several unexpected guests surprise her with a full-course meal at home. Sheila called her other single guest. He'd been to a party the night before and was still recovering and canceling also. 
It was already dark when Sheila pulled the turkey out of the oven. Absolutely perfect. Too bad there'll only be three of us eating, Sheila tried to console herself. But at least she'd have some company on this day, of all days. And then she noticed the blinking light on the answering machine. Her remaining guests, the husband and wife, had evidently returned Sheila's call while she was in the shower, and they too had canceled, citing other obligations for this evening. Disappointment turned to anger, turned to self-pity, turned to loneliness, and she struggled against the lump in her throat and the tears welling in her eyes. All her hard work for what? Another Christmas? Alone? Again? She almost pitched the turkey in the trash in anger. But then she remembered the homeless man the night before, but one of 92,000 on any given night in Los Angeles, many of whom, for whatever reason, don't or can't get to a shelter or feeding station. And then she remembered the cardboard trays. She dished up her abandoned banquet in all the trays, plus one paper plate, covered them with foil, rubber-banded paper napkins around sets of plastic knives, forks, and spoons, and carefully placed thirteen hot, fresh-cooked meals into a couple large boxes, which she then loaded into her beat-up car and began trolling the mean streets of Hollywood and Silver Lake, looking for dark shapes curled up in bus stops, abandoned doorways, and alleys. Tonight was much colder than last night, she'd noted, and a fine mist was beginning to fall, about as close to Christmas weather as Los Angeles gets, but still not fit to have to sleep in. The first recipient was a grizzled old codger on a bus bench. She asked him if he'd eaten yet, and he replied, no. But his eyes and smile grew wide when she handed him the first tray. At the next stop, next to a self-storage building, were a young man and woman huddled under blankets for warmth. They'd arrived in town yesterday and didn't even know where the shelters were and hadn't eaten since leaving Las Vegas. They, too, appreciated the kindness of this stranger. And in another doorway, an immigrant woman who spoke no English but smiled and uttered, Gracias, and asked for another meal for the dark shape behind the hedge, a young girl, her daughter, Sheila presumed, who eagerly wolfed down the meal. And so it went, until finally Sheila was down to four meals, driving west on Santa Monica Boulevard when she passed what looked like someone collapsed in the middle of the street just off the boulevard. She called 911 on her cell phone, doubled around the block, parked and ran, to the extent her 67-year-old legs could run, to the person still sprawled there on the pavement. Are you okay? she asked. With that, what turned out to be a 17-year-old boy looked up at her with a tear-stained face and told Sheila unconvincingly, I'm fine. Please just leave me alone. I want to die. He got up and walked off as the paramedics arrived. With no one to treat, the paramedics shrugged quickly, likewise deserted the scene, leaving Sheila alone, watching the boy walked down the block. She jumped back in her car, drove around the block once more, parked, and caught up again with the boy and asked him if he'd eaten, to which he replied, yes. What's your name? Davy? As Davy, who obviously had been crying, opened up to Sheila, two others, a black transvestite named Latoya and a street hustler called Rex, who were acquaintances of Davy's evidently, happened by and stopped to offer comfort. Sheila thought of her own departed son, as Davy explained that his parents had recently thrown him out of his home for being gay and that it was Christmas, his first Christmas on the street, and that he was all alone and so sad and lonely that he'd decided to lay down in the street, hoping, hoping that someone would run him over when Sheila had happened by. Davy cried in Latoya's arms as he spilled his story. Rex and Sheila, too, were fighting back tears as they listened. Sometimes life's just a real bitch, Latoya replied, hugging Davy consolingly. But you're not alone now, baby. You got us here, and we got you, baby. Come on, group hug. It's Christmas, baby. Smile. And Sheila wiped his tears. Davy asked, You still got that meal? I sure do, Sheila replied as she walked over to her car. I thought you'd already eaten. No, I just, I wasn't hungry earlier. Do you have any extra for my friends? 
Sheila returned with the last four meals, and all four of them, a 67-year-old woman, a prostitute, a drag queen, and a runaway teen, had Christmas dinner right there on the curb. It was when Latoya again remarked that none of them were alone any longer because they were together there on the curb on Christmas night that Sheila remembered from the candlelight service the night before at the Church of the Big Red Ribbon when the loudspeaker voice of God sound alike said, Wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there he is also. And the other part about, Where you serve the least of these my children, there you serve me also. And then she also remembered the darkness and the light in the darkness and the light creating new light to banish the darkness. And then Sheila got it. It really was Christmas, right there on that cold, hard curbside in West Hollywood. And she knew that Davy wasn't the only one who'd been safe that night, because there was Christmas. Every week, the United Methodist Church, located at the intersections of Franklin Avenue and Highland Avenue in the Hollywood Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles, provides the homeless with sack lunches, toiletries, clothing, blankets, as well as books from their library. Another holiday favorite around here is a special talk to Vaj with Santa Claus. This is Vosh Bodhi, and I had only one thing on my Christmas list, for Santa to TTV, talk to Vosh. Of course, I got my wish, and Santa Jack, star of the hilarious and touching documentary Becoming Santa, stopped by to do just that, TTV. I know this is a busy time of the year for you, Santa. Thank you for stopping by. So how did you become Santa? I got the idea to make the movie 10 years ago. My original idea was to get another actor, and Jeff and I would follow that person through Santa Claus School, and then on each job that they would get after school. We talked to several actors about doing it, and we couldn't find anybody that would agree to do it. We had one person who was semi-interested, but I felt that they were interested in, in getting in there and trying to wreak some havoc in the Santa world, and that is not what we wanted to do. And it just took that long for me to finally say, all right, I'm going to go do this, and did it myself. What surprised you during the making of this documentary? When Jeff and I embarked upon, upon the project, we were concerned that we would encounter some gross Santas. The idea that the guy who's playing Santa at the mall is this out-of-work bum that only gets work in December is a little pervasive in our society. And while I didn't expect that to be the norm, I thought we might encounter a few of those. Uh, and we didn't encounter any of those. Um, and the reality is that all these guys that play Santa are doing it out of the kindness of their heart, that they have the Santa heart before they go to it. And the guys that go to it just to make money at it don't last long because it's a much harder job than they expect it to be. It looks like a tough job, but do you ever get any special treatment? I went to the DMV because my driver's license expired and was checking in at the DMV and the woman behind the counter said, do you play Santa Claus? I said, I do. And I gave her a nice sticker because I carry naughty and nice stickers. 
she said, oh, I knew it. She was so excited and so, so happy to have a sticker. And, and so I went and stood in line and her boss came over to me and stuck her hand out and said, I want one. And I said, I'm sorry, one what? And she said, I want a nice sticker. I said, well, you're being naughty right now, but I'll give you one. And I gave her a nice sticker. And she said, oh, thank you. You go right to the front of the line. And I was in and out of the DMV in 15 minutes. And I felt a little guilty because there were some elderly people standing in line. But, hey. <laughs> Always get VIP Santa. So any moments you're a little less proud of? I made one mistake on the train ride. There was a little girl who followed me everywhere on the train on one of the rides. Every time I turned around, there she was asking when I was going to get to her. And I said, well, I don't know where you're sitting, but if you go sit down, I'll be there as soon as I can. And then she started telling me how her brother had been bad and shouldn't get anything for Christmas this year. And the mistake that I made was in my Santa mode, when I finally got to she and her brother and their parents, I said to her brother, your sister tells me you haven't been good this year. And that was a huge mistake. He lunged across the seat at her. So that was, that was probably the, the one big mistake that I made. Well, do you have a favorite story about creating that Santa magic? In the film, we do sneak and peeks. And a sneak and peek is Santa comes to the house on Christmas Eve after the children have gone to sleep and starts putting presents under the tree and stuffing the stockings. And the parents wake the children and say, you know, come downstairs, be very quiet. We can't let Santa see us. And last year, I did a sneak and peek for uh, some friends of mine. And their daughter uh, was six or seven at the time. And they woke her up. And I was in the living room putting presents under the tree. And they just opened the door a crack. And she saw me and screamed and ran back to bed. Her parents explained to me later, she said, Santa's not supposed to see her. She didn't want to get in trouble because she had seen Santa. Well, that was last year. And last week, this friend called me and said, she just said to me out of the blue, Daddy, what did Santa do last year that made so much noise that he woke you up? She's a total believer now. <laughs> you know, she's going to believe it longer than any of the rest of her friends because she's going to say, no, I saw him. And my parents were right there with me. In the film, it said that you could be one of the top Santas in the world. What do you think about that? Uh, Tip O'Neill said that all politics are local politics. And when you get down to it, the best Santas are local Santas. Ernest Berger is the best Santa to go visit a military family. He's ex-military himself. He shows up in that fatigues outfit with the fur lined, and the family immediately knows that he understands them, and he is one of them. Santa D. Sinclair, who bills himself as the real black Santa and works in Atlanta. Great guy. He's an awesome Santa for his community. I don't feel as though I, I have a community in my neighborhood where I am the Santa for that community, for, you know, for Hollywood as we know it. As a gay male, have you ever considered being the gay Santa? I put a lot of thought into that because Mrs. Claus is a big part of the Santa culture. Even though she only came into the picture a hundred years ago, I don't, I, you know, I don't work with a Mrs. Claus. I wouldn't advertise myself as a gay Santa. I'm Jack Sanderson, who happens to be gay. It's not the center of my identity. And frankly, for the film, it's off topic. And I don't know that a gay Santa serves a purpose because I feel like Santa should be for everyone. Ultimately, there's nothing about sex that has anything to do with Santa. <laughs> Look, I bleached my hair white, and a couple of guys started calling me a polar bear, and this was a new term to me. Like, I was new, like, I was new, I was in the bear category, right? But now with my hair white, it's like, hey, you're a polar bear. I'm like, uh, Santa doesn't like that. <laughs> so, Santa, do you have any words of wisdom that can help us throughout the year? 
Santa Tim Conahan, who's one of the top Santas, talked about the importance of secret giving. If you need something and I give it to you, you should not feel beholden to me. You should, you're just able to appreciate it. You're able to appreciate that somebody knows what you're going through and cares. That's the key. If it's me and you're beholden to me, you're going to try and figure out, well, gosh, what can I do to pay him back? Or how am I indebted to him now? And there should not be any debt in charity. When I give you something and I give it anonymously, I benefit as well because I feel good about what I've done. That's true charity. Well, Santa, I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. And in the spirit of true charity, I have to let you know that you already are the real, bona fide Hollywood Santa. What other Santa stars in his own movie, does the press circuit, and then goes on an international tour but the real deal? You can find Becoming Santa on Facebook, where you can get updates, photos, and learn how you can get your very own copy of one of the best films of the year, Becoming Santa, starring Hollywood's own Santa Jack. Wishing you all a happy holiday season. I'm Vosh Bodhi. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 ho. Oh, Vosh, we'll work on your hose. Okay, cool. Wait, was I just dissed by Santa? Until next time, remember, y'all, TTV, talk to Vosh. The documentary, Becoming Santa, is available on Amazon Prime, Vudu, and iTunes. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Tom Dooley sails to infamy, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1954, Navy Dr. Tom Dooley was aboard USS Montague, headed for Vietnam to evacuate refugees. Disheartened by their rampant diseases like smallpox, malaria, and leprosy, he went into full gear, treating three to 400 people a day at the refugee camps. The model of efficiency, he published a book about his experiences there. In early 1956, he was accused of being gay. His phones were tapped. Agents tracked his every move. Despite Dooley's accomplishments, the Navy quickly slapped him with these words, undesirable discharge. As much as those words plagued him, he returned to Southeast Asia and built a network of clinics tending hundreds of thousands of rural people. Although Dooley died in 1961 at the age of 37, it was clear that only one label had stuck humanitarian. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and is recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine.
Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our next gift to you is a radio play from the actor and writer group Playwright Six, recorded before a live audience at the Celebration Theater in West Hollywood. Secret Santa by Nancy Beverly. A gay bar in West Hollywood, Christmas Eve, 11 a.m. Not a creature is stirring. Well, hell, the place just opened. The two main bartenders are setting up for the day. Brendan, the manager, and Eddie, not the manager. Brendan, we're gonna have a truckload of these holiday cocktail napkins left over. Relax, Eddie. Even in March, they'll still wipe up a spilled Cosmopolitan. Well, we definitely overordered on the eggnog. That will not be pretty in March. New Year's Eve, Eddie. New Year's Eve. Plenty of partying and drinking to come. You think anyone's even gonna come in tonight? Just losers. And what does that make us? Employed. Uh, what time are we closing? The usual. 2 a.m. on Christmas Eve? We're the only port in a storm for some poor schnooks. Come on, we should close early. The malls are closing at 5. I thought you wanted the money. Well, up to a point. And what point is that? I have a date tonight. Oh, a date? Oh, well, why didn't you say so? Then by all means, leave now. I can stay till four. Thank you, Jesus. Look, just because I have a prospect, there's no reason for you to trot out your usual parade ring. Oh, I'm thrilled for you, Eddie. Four o'clock, does that give you enough time to buy the perfect gift and get all dolled up in the perfect outfit? Yes, it does. I'll bet you have both all picked out. Yes, I do. It's none of your business. You'll make a pronouncement if I tell you. I like to think of it as quality control. My blue suede pants, blue turtleneck, and black Hugo Boss boots. What? The powdered blue turtleneck? Yes. It's a little passive. Is that how you want to come off? Yes, and I'll be wearing a sign that says I'm a doormat. <laughs> Brendan, I look good in it. Okay, so what's the gift? Oh, no, I'm not telling. No, sir, no way, no how. Well, how well do you know this person? My God, you're giving this gift on the first date. It's not a first date. It's a second. <laughs> we had a great time on the first one. A mere week ago. And we've talked on the phone like a dozen times since. And it's a small gift. A diamond brooch? It's Christmas Eve, for Christ's sake. Pun intended? And it seems weird not to do a little something. And I thought about a bottle of wine, but he'd think I got it for free from here. And I thought about a card, but that seemed impersonal. So you got him a candy cane with a note that says, lick me. <laughs> you know, cynicism will get you only so far, young man. And being a hopeless romantic will get your heart stomped on every time. And I've got the tear-stained shoulder to prove it, Eddie. Oh, God. Maybe I overdid it with the gift. Come on. What did you get him? A book. Entitled? The Illustrated Rumi. It's a book of poems with this amazing artwork. And yes, it's a little hard to find. And I had to special order it. And yes, it's hopelessly romantic of me. But he said he loves to read. What? Gifts are often the reflection of those giving them. I want you to wear this. I want you to decorate your home with that. And he likes poetry and art. I know he's gonna love this book, and I'm not just foisting it on him. I think, I hope, damn. <laughs>
And at that moment, Trevor joins them. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Brendan. Merry Christmas. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Trav. You got it already? Right here. I was first in line when Brentano's opened. Of course, then I bought $50 worth of books for me. That's tacky on Christmas Eve, isn't it? Heck no. That's keeping the economy afloat. Thanks for picking it up. This is a great book. The artwork is amazing. See, Brendan? While I was standing in line, I was thrumming through it. Oh, I loved this one. This is a great poem. Come to the orchard in the spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. If you do not come, these do not matter. If you do come, these do not matter. So romantic. <laughs> Thank you. I thought so. Point for Eddie. Got your evening wear all picked out? I did until the fashion police came along and made a citizen's arrest. If you're happy with your statement... What statement are you making? I look great in blue. Your powder blue turtleneck? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so envious. You're going for it, aren't you? I got tired of playing it safe. I'm diving into the deep end. Man, I wish I... Trevor, come on. You're great at meeting Oh, I'm great at meeting people. I'm terrible after that. Five minutes down the road and I'm a mess. I can't hear what they're saying over the voices in my head. I saw you at Philip's birthday party. You were right out there in the thick of it. Fifty people there, and 49 of them looked better than me. Could we please place a moratorium on people lifting weights in this city? And teeth whitening? <laughs> Everyone's teeth are so white now, I feel as if I'm from Appalachia. <laughs> Or Great Britain. Are they that bad? Ignore him. Anyway, good luck with your date. Let me know how it... And just then, Santa Claus enters, the one and only. <laughs> Holy crap. Santa! <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Have you been good, little boys? That's us. <laughs> Speak for yourself. So, Santa's gay, who knew? A red velvet ermine trim? Come on. Anything to drink, Santa? Maybe something for the reindeer? Oh, we're all fine. Which one of you lucky fellas is Brendan? Oh, that would be me. Well, here's your gift. Merry Christmas. Brendan, geez, what if it's breakable? It's got to ride all the way from the North Pole in a sleigh. It can't be that delicate. Ever the romantic. There's no tag. Who's it from, Santa? I'm just a delivery service, sorry. Open it, open it, we're dying of anticipation. I see he's not one to savor the wrapping job. Or save the paper. Cut to the chase, my motto. Oh Lord, it's theme night, a book of poetry. <laughs> by Mark Doty. Who the hell is Mark Doty? Another romantic gesture though, it's definitely in the air. I want to take up poetry, broaden my horizons from number crunching all day. Trevor, you can't just take up poetry. <laughs> I meant read it, not write it. I'm not that much of a fool. So we don't know who it's from? No card. How chicken is that? Is it inscribed? Maybe there's something really sweet and touching inside. Oh, please. Well? Hey, I told you my gift and my clothing choices. Quid pro quo, Clarice, quid pro quo. Uh, uh, Brendan, um, I've also been contracted for the return trip to deliver um, any message back. So I'd be happy to 
pass along any sentiments to the giver. Well, isn't that cheeky? I'm feeling a little backed into a corner here. That's not a very nice thing to do on Christmas Eve. Um, you work here? Yeah. Can I have a Diet Coke, please? Diet? Santa, you need to do some bulking up. I can't afford to. And come January, it's back to my regular job, actor. Oh, actor! There's an original profession in this town. Second only to bartender. Here you go, Santa. Thanks. Uh, Brendan, the, the reply can be written or it can be verbal. I don't like being put on the spot. Mr. Poetry had maybe weeks or months to think of an answer about this, and I'm supposed to come up with a snappy answer and... Hey, Eddie, that's my gift. Ooh, there is an inscription. Thursday nights are a lot of fun because of you. It's the highlight of my week. Your clever way with words makes me smile. Your innuendos make me blush. Your big smile makes my knees go weak. How about a cup of coffee sometime? See you Thursday. Clearly he's no poet. He should have had Mark Doty write it for him. <laughs> Brendan, how about some tact? I call him like I see him. And a cup of coffee? I serve coffee all day. At least he didn't say, let's go for a drink. It's nice to have a secret admirer, and he made the effort, even if it isn't perfect. How do we know this person isn't a stalker? A stalker? You've taken a sweet gesture and turned it into the Fox 10 o'clock news. Excuse me, you got any peanuts? Sure, Santa. You know what, let him show his face. Be a man. Don't hide behind some anonymous gift. Is that your message back? Yeah, Santa, it is. Hold it. We're not letting it go out like that. We need to tidy it up. Oh, come on. If he sees me every Thursday night, he knows that I'm a guy who doesn't miss words. What's on Thursday nights? Maybe we can figure out who he is. Maybe you really like him, but don't recognize him yet. Thursday is game night. Nothing formal. Started a year ago, maybe. People play backgammon, Pictionary, Scrabble. It could be any one of a two dozen guys. Did you notice anyone in particular flirting with you? Everyone flirts with the bartender. It goes with the job. Why didn't he step up to the bar and ask me a few questions? You know, find out who I am instead of buying me a book of poetry by someone I've never heard of. Maybe he's scared and he's showing you who he is first. No, no. People want to make you into something you're not. They buy you gifts to get you to fit their idea of who they want you to be. Santa, back me up on this. Mm-mm. Come on. What's your message back gonna be? Thanks, but no thanks. You don't even know him. I've got work to do. You'll break it to him gently, right, Santa? Of course. I wish someone would buy me a book of poetry. Well, I certainly hope my gift goes over better tonight. I'm sure it will, Eddie. Thank you, Trevor. I'm sure you'll be fine. You know, I'm gonna start coming to Thursday nights here. Maybe I'll run into this poetry lover. That's the spirit. Great idea. Um, how much do I owe you for the drink? On the house, Santa. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. I, I hope you find somebody more suited to you, Brendan. Yeah. Then Santa takes the Mark Doty book. Hey, where are you going with that? And hands it to Trevor. Uh, I usually sit in the corner there with the Scrabble group. <gasps> yeah, um, okay, Brennan. Maybe I was chicken. I get to see the witty, sarcastic side of you all the time, which is fun, but I wanted to see if the poetry gift would show me another side of you. I, I, I guess it didn't. Sorry to have bothered you. And with that, Santa exits. Oh, oh my, my god. god. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> 
Merry Christmas, Brendan, you tactless idiot. <laughs> Looks like you got yourself a date, Trev. Wow, man. So, Brendan, what are we serving on the lunch menu today? Humble pie? Looks like it. Man. So, okay if I leave it for? Sure. Have a good time, Eddie. <laughs> Thank you. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> you better not cry. Secret Santa starred Eric Cooper as Brendan, Daryl Garbo as Eddie, Peter James Smith as Trevor, Randy Ross as Santa, and Anne-Marie Hare as the narrator. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial, and we appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast well, we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos and IMRU Radio podcast on YouTube. Have a happy Kwanzaa, Christmas, Hanukkah, and winter solstice. And just in case you're wondering, all I want for the holidays is the absolution of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy. Thanks, and good night. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Oh, I feel a camp moment coming on. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. I don't care about the present. Hold on, I'm stopping the party! When the 
the stocking. Are